You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 20th of December 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show... She must enact the will of the people expressed during the referendum. Otherwise, it is not a referendum at all. Doing it over and over again, if someone did not like it, is this democracy? The United Kingdom being lectured on democratic propriety by Vladimir Putin feels a very 2018 end to the year. My guests Jonathan Fenby and Michael Binion will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including the embarrassment of one of Europe's great magazines by an imaginative reporter, China's ongoing roundup of Canadians, and baseball diplomacy between the United States and Cuba. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller. On today's show, we've done this bit. I'm joined by Michael Binion and Jonathan Fenby. Uh, Jonathan is the former editor of the South China Morning Post, now chairman of China Research and director of European Political Research at TS Lombard. Michael Binion is foreign affairs specialist with The Times, and I am now reading from the correct bit of script. Welcome both uh, to the show, and we will start with Russia and with the increasingly bizarre spectacle of the interminable press conference with which President Vladimir Putin enjoys seeing the year out. This year's has been especially peculiar, with a recurring theme of Putin insisting on the democratic legitimacy of votes elsewhere in the world, upon which Russia has had an influence yet to be determined, Trump in the US, Brexit in the UK. Putin also addressed various other malfeasances of which Russia has been accused and issued his traditional denials of absolutely everything. Uh, Michael, did we learn anything? Well, we learned that President Putin is a master of how to turn things around and play back the story to other audiences. And quite cleverly so. He's well-briefed. He's always well-briefed. He has probably been given advance warning of what all the questions are. But he picks some pretty tough questions in order to deal with them head-on. And he does deal with them head-on. And as you say, the whole question of Russian interference in other people's elections is a big topic, which all Russian listeners and readers and general public have heard about though not from their own media. So Putin knew he's got to address it, and he did. Uh, Jonathan, I'm, I'm always quite mesmerised by this marathon press conference that, that Putin gives every year because it's, it's one of very few times at which you get a sense that he's actually enjoying himself. And, and he, he does appear to rather enjoy uh, taking on reporters, uh, who, as Michael says, I'm sure are handpicked and he's told very well in advance what they're going to ask and the, the perils of deviating from the script do not bear thinking about. But nevertheless, um, he does appear to actually quite enjoy it. Yes, well, he knows there are going to be no surprises, I think, uh, as you say. Uh, and he plunges in and it's a great set piece occasion for him. I mean, that's the way some leaders do use press conferences, not so much to reply to questions as to have their own uh, big show there. You know, I think back to when I was in Paris and Charles de Gaulle, who made, of course, a speciality uh, of this, the press conference at which all the questions were indeed duly planted there. Indeed, one year, the reporter who was meant to ask about something wasn't there for some reason. And de Gaulle simply said, oh, it seems to me that there is a question of, and lost <laughs> into it himself. Um, you know, th- 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 this was completely, this was big high theatre, uh, which uh, de Gaulle enjoyed in all 
enormously uh, until he became too old to carry it off. And I think Putin is the same. Well, I have to say, he's actually a bit sharper. Putin's a bit sharper because I've been to three press conferences given to foreign correspondents when the questions weren't blunted at all. In fact, I asked one of them once uh, mm. and he came straight back. He had all the facts. He knew roughly what we were going to ask. This is, this is the... This, this was Putin rather than de Gaulle, when we say veteran commentator, not <laughs> yeah, quite not, that, not not quite not that, that veteran. veteran. But Putin was pretty well briefed, uh, and he knows what the questions are likely to be. I asked him about the role of religion in Russia, and he came really straight back with a very good answer. And he, as you say, he does enjoy it because he is on top of the subject. He's on top of most of the subjects, and he commands the agenda, and he can wing it. I mean, he thinks on his no. feet. And he knows how to respond on his feet. And also, he's very, very well aware of what are the tricky points for Russian policy and how to get around it. And old KGB training is always throw the accusation back in the face of the accusers. Hence the whole stuff about uh, teaching Britain what Brexit and what democracy is all about. Just to follow that up, Michael... um did you get any sense at any of the, the Putin press conferences you attended that any of the questions, whether from you or anyone else, did rattle him slightly or, or catch him out a little bit? Because it's it's a very tricky thing to do at a press conference or in person when you interview somebody who's been interviewed a lot to ask them the question they genuinely had not seen coming. Yes, I don't mm. think there were any that he hadn't seen coming, but there were certainly some questions he didn't like at all. Uh, questions about Chechnya, for example, questions about uh, whether the uh, Russian security services had planted bombs in flats, which was an old accusation mm, yep. uh, some years ago, uh, and things that sort of angered him. And straight away, he became extremely aggressive. And he would say, I don't see why you're asking this sort of question. It is pure propaganda. It is the result of conspiracy theories which do not exist, etc., etc. And he threw it right back at the correspondent and more or less said, you are an unfriendly person for asking an unfriendly question. Uh, Jonathan, were you were you surprised by his uh, vehemence in his insisting on the the legitimacy of the the Brexit vote here in the UK? Is is, is he did he sound like a man anxious that he's not going to get what he paid for? Uh, maybe a man who isn't going to be believed <laughs> entirely. <laughs> that, that's another question. Uh, far be it from me to comment uh, on that. But I think uh, the point that Michael makes is a very good one because. In the case of Putin here, as in the case of the goal in the past, uh, the he, the, the giver of the press conference, is in charge, in fact. Now, we have the idea, the theory, that actually press conferences, it's the journalists who are in charge. But you have a certain group uh, of leaders, I think, who feel confident enough they're using this for their own purposes. And basically, the journalists are just there, you know, as um, second-rate players to supply the the right uh, questions uh, and if they deviate they can be slapped down very easily and what you see with Donald Trump for instance is a mixture of the two that I mean he's often trying to run the press conference as he thinks it should be run with himself very much in charge but often he falls flat on his face <laughs> in this because he just doesn't isn't enough what Putin what is what to go certainly was he is not sufficiently the expert of the material he's not on top of everything and you know he can only repeat the uh, let's say uh, less than entirely truthful version he puts uh, forward. Michael do you think that's the key to being a good press conference performer and this is of course a separate question as to whether you are a good politician or a good human being do you do you basically just need to know what you're talking about? You do, you yeah. do, you need to be well briefed and this is why some politicians have long rehearsals before press conferences where they're fed 
uh, difficult questions. I mean, President Reagan was pretty good at this. I mean, he was never very good at mastering a complicated brief, but he performed pretty well in press conferences, usually. He used charm, he sort of was nice to the press, and also the really tricky questions, he fielded them... Well, okay, he never fell flat on his face because he'd been briefed exactly on those points only half an hour beforehand. And it helps if you have a sense of humour and a quick sense of humour and also a repertoire of old jokes, perhaps. So you can muddle those up and uh, play them out as you like. Well, let's look now at the embarrassment currently besetting the prestigious German journal Der Spiegel, which has been forced into the admission that one of its star reporters, Klaas Relotius, has for many years been making stuff up or has, to use Der Spiegel's own mea culpa, falsified articles on a grand scale and even invented characters. Relotius, who has now resigned, admitted to cooking the details of 14 pieces, though there appear to be suspicions that it went much further than that. Stories like this, I have to say, absolutely mesmerise me. Uh, it's it's the it's it's not just a question of how on earth you think you can possibly get away with it, especially in the modern age. It's it's why you would do this, and this this I, I, this may be me just trying to make a virtue of my own laziness here. But this this sounds like just it's always sounds to me like way harder work than actually <laughs> writing down what you actually saw and going and getting actual quotes from people. I don't think well, it may be harder work, but it actually it's more likely to get you into the paper. Yes. I think that's that's yes. the end of it. It's just it's simply a desire to be there, to be on the front cover uh, of Spiegel, to be one of the star reporters, to get awards and so on. Uh, and I think that's the driving force. And if there's uh, a certain amount of work involved in this and involved in remembering your lies, which is always, of course, the most difficult thing, so be it. This is the other reason I don't do that. As people who work <laughs> with me will attest, I have an absolutely shocking short-term memory. So it, 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 it's it's far far easier just to go with what actually happened, then you can remember that later. Yeah. Um, Michael, there is the question, I mean, obviously, and you, you can spend a lot of time uh, looking in, into the, the, the psyche of somebody who does something like this, which is almost certainly going to get found out eventually, especially in the modern era. But I, I did want to ask you, um, if you think back to the pre-online days, how much, and not naming any names, uh, how much of this sort of thing was there? Well, I will name some names because I remember <laughs> it particularly well and I was quite involved in the middle of it all and that was the Hitler Diaries. Yes, oh, of, of course. And that was also a German yeah. magazine, this time um, well, Stern, which mm. fell right into the thick of it all because they were bamboozled by one of their own star reporters who had simply made it all up and he had invented the idea. He, was, <laughs> he fell for a scam, he fell for a very clever forger who had uh, written all these false diaries, and then he sold them to Stern as being absolutely the authentic thing. The Times and Times newspapers got sort of marginally involved in it all as well, so we went to negotiations with Stern about, you know, is this true? What is the proof? And all that. And, of course, in the end, it all unraveled, and everyone had egg on their faces, not least Stern, who lost thousands and thousands of copies in, in lost circulation and lost a lot of money and looked very stupid for quite a long time. But it is exactly as Jonathan said, this man was a bit of an egomaniac. He thought he had this wonderful idea, to, you know, old Nazis, a great story, even in Germany, and he would milk it for all it's worth. And and people do this. And there was another famous case in the New York Times yep, of a young yep. black reporter who um, uh, it was particularly 
uh, embarrassing for the New York Times because they'd promoted the guy saying we're bringing in one of our young minority reporters and he made a whole lot of stuff up and in the end they had to apologize with a headline three headlines deep saying yeah. you know we got it wrong got it. and w- what happens I think in, in some of these cases and this comes out in the Spiegel uh, account of, of what happened here is that you can have all the fact checking in the world but in the end, when somebody says, as was in this case, I and I alone came across something, or somebody said something to me and me alone, and it's a great story, yeah. very few editors are going to say, yeah. well, actually, I know better than well, you. Well, this, this, this is what I wanted to ask you, because I, I'm, I'm reminded of talking to a photographer who had worked quite a lot with a very well-known veteran British foreign correspondent whose name I will not mention, uh, but but who did... I can see you both guessed who I'm talking about. <laughs> sure we will. Uh, but, but, but who did say of him uh, in, a, in a great piece of, of, of passive-aggressive British understatement right. that he, he always had a remarkable talent for, for seeing things the rest of us didn't. Didn't he? Yes, uh, but but as as a as an editor of a newspaper as you were, how did you know whether or not you could trust your reporters? Did you ever sort of get copy in front of you and just find yourself scratching your chin and going, "Hmm, really?" A couple of times, yes, yes. And you went back on it as much as you could. But in the end, the decision, you know, is this true? Is this guy telling the truth or not? Was a matter of of judgment. Yes. Uh, it, it does still come down to that quite a lot. Of course, you can do lots of checks. You can do kind of subsidiary checks so that, uh, in fact, you're finding the likelihood that what you're being presented with is true or not. Mm. But there is often quite a subjective judgment in the end. And, of course, as with the New York Times case, and I think as with this case with Spiegel, uh, in a strange way, the more successful the reporter, the falsifier is and becomes, the more at least some editors may feel they've got almost an engagement, a commitment, an investment. It's, yeah. the, it's, 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 the, it it's the sunk so. cost fallacy, isn't it? Yeah, you, yeah, you, you, once you invest, I remember, once you invest there was know, also the... Are we really going to pull this guy up? The famous case of, what was his name, Michael Finkel at the New York Times magazine and Stephen Glass at New Republic, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that once the, the prestige of the title becomes associated with the That's individual the, reporter, yes. it's very hard to admit... Actually, this 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 bloke's been taking us for a bit of a ride. Um, see, Michael, I, I I run up against when I'm reporting in the field. The thing that always I find frustrating is it's when you run across, and I'm sure you've had the same experience when you run across the situation or person or quote which is so completely spot on and exactly what you need that you just find yourself thinking nobody's going to believe I didn't make this up. Um, I I actually have a, I have a photo hanging in my house that was taken by a photographer I was working with in Sarajevo who only took it because he said you have to buy the print because nobody is going to believe I didn't yeah. cook this. Um, and it, it, it is of a, a small child we met in, in Sarajevo who had a, a toy pistol in one hand uh, and a very real grenade launcher in the other oh. and, looked, and looked as delighted with it as any seven-year-old would. Yeah. Uh, we, we did manage to persuade him to, to hand it over eventually. Um, but again, no, as a photographer quite rightly said, I, he said I would not send this to any editor yeah. because they would all think I'd, 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 I'd set, I'd it, set up. it up. Yeah, made it up. Well, that is a danger. And of course, there is the danger that some things just appear to be so pat and unfortunately. Unfortunately, people and photographers also uh, fake things. I mean, a Mm. famous picture uh, one British tabloid newspaper took during the Six-Day War, I think it was, Arab-Israeli War, 
of an Israeli soldier kneeling in prayer for his fallen comrades. And it was obviously staged because people said, actually, Orthodox Jews do not kneel in prayer. And that is absolutely <laughs> not what he would <laughs> do. He would, yeah. And the guy had just thought, you know, sell it to a British audience. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you just need somebody with common sense to look at something and say, now, is this right? Or is it, as Jonathan says, it's a matter of judgment in the end. Yeah, sometimes things just are too good to be true, but they, they can still be true. Well, indeed. So, uh, Jonathan, just as a final thought on this, what, what do you make of how De Spiegel has handled it so far? They're clearly uh, mortified. Um, well, they're mortified, particularly since uh, their founder's uh, motto was, tell it like it is, <laughs> which you know, is, is a bit coming back to, to, to bite them. But I, I think they've done the right thing. I mean, you get to a point with this, obviously, where... Uh, if you've decided that the reporter has been making it up for a long time, the only thing to do is to yes. come out and say, "Yeah, we got it all wrong," and so on, and, and pull, you know, pull the truth. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I do recommend just before we move on, uh, I, I, some of this reporter's victims, a couple of people in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. I, I recommend googling this. They they have gone through his uh, dispatch from Fergus Falls. He'd done the journey into the heartland to meet Trump voters to try and figure out what was going yeah. on in the forgotten flyover states, which has become an entire genre yeah, of journalism absolutely. in the last couple of years. Uh, it does rather turn out that those people aren't aren't quite as daft as Mr. Relotius L- thought they were. Uh, I recommend looking it up. It's 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 both it's both quite properly indignant and yet very funny. There is also the question, of course, of where the reporter doesn't make it up, but leads real people to say in reality things that the reporter wants those people to say and which serves the purpose now you know is that a form of falsification maybe it's a tricky business uh we're going to take a short break now you're listening to midori house with me andrew muller along with jonathan fenby and michael binion coming up next china continues to round up the usual canadians Our very own Monocle Library is growing into a robust collection of well-turned-out titles. For an in-depth look into our core theme of quality of life, why not delve into our first-ever book, The Monocle Guide to Better Living? For any would-be business leaders, entrepreneurs, or even established companies in search of fresh ideas, there's The Monocle Guide to Good Business. In How to Make a Nation, A Monocle Guide, we look at the small and the big things that can help make our nations work better. And in the Monocle Guide to Drinking and Dining, we bypass the foam and the fuss to uncover the makings of a truly great meal. Monocle's handsome books are published by our friends at Gestalten in Berlin and offer a world of new experiences between the covers. So spruce up your shelves today and buy some of our titles online at monocle.com or from any good bookstore. You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Mullister. With me are Jonathan Fenby and Michael Binion. The number of Canadians now held in China on charges ranging from somewhere from the debatable to the opaque now stands at three. Joining former diplomat Michael Kovrig and businessman Michael Spavor in the Huskow is Sarah McIver, an English teacher. The official line is that she has been running over visa, visa issues indeed, but few believe that this sudden enthusiasm for incarcerating Canadians is unrelated to the recent arrest of Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou who is wanted in the in the United States and was arrested in Canada. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has gone so far as to describe himself as very concerned. Um, Jonathan, would it be an exaggeration at this point to describe these people as hostages? 
They are... Host- they are becoming hostages. It's it's not absolutely certain. It, that will depend on how long they are held for. But for the moment, there is no doubt they are being held in reprisal for uh, the arrest of Meng. Uh, and as far as we know, her case is going through the due process of law, whereas that doesn't seem the case, but it very rarely is in China with the other three. So yes, they are hostages. Indeed. So just to follow that up, though, and I suspect the answer to this is obvious, but Meng Wanzhou was, of course, arrested in Canada at the request of the United Mm. States, who actually want a word with her over sanctions busting. So why is it that China's not arresting Americans? Because it's, well, you would say, first of all, because it's easier to go for, for Canadians. Indeed. Because there is a certain trade war negotiation going on between Trump uh, and uh, Xi Jinping, in which I think the Chinese strategy during the 90-day ceasefire we're in at the moment is to offer uh, the White House some small concessions, which don't actually treat uh, cost China much, but which Trump can tweet as great victories for himself. And he does, uh, the Chinese don't want that process, which has been going ahead quite well for them on autos, soybeans and other things. They don't want that to be complicated by the arrest of American citizens. Easier to do it with the Canadians, they think. They may be wrong. Uh, Michael, what reaction do we think the Chinese are hoping for here? Because Justin Trudeau, as he has made clear and has quite rightly said, he does not have any oversight of Canada's judiciary. It's not really up to him uh, whether this woman stays in Canada or is released or not. Um, And it's not that imaginable that Donald Trump really cares how many Canadians the Chinese arrest, is it? No, he doesn't care at all. Um, And I think it's a slightly misguided approach because, of course, it will only reinforce Canada's sense of acting morally and acting in the right way. I slightly question the original arrest in the first place in that um, it's not absolutely clear that she did anything that was a criminal act apart from going against American interests in enforcing a very rigorous sanctions Mm. policy. Uh, China is uh, among a number of other countries that still trades with Iran uh, openly or covertly uh, and arresting somebody of this kind seems to me A, provocative and B, uh, misguided. Uh, Certainly, um, uh, Canada was simply following an international warrant that the Americans have put out. There may have been some pressure from Ottawa onto uh, the administration in Washington, I don't know. But the reaction of the Chinese has simply made Canada more sure that it has um, got to take the right, you know, it's got to continue on the path it has taken, as they did after Saudi Arabia uh, had a hissy fit and became extremely angry with the Canadians for criticizing aspects of human rights policy in Saudi Arabia. Um, Jonathan, what options does Justin Trudeau presently have well, one option, of course, would be uh, to drop the case completely and let her get on a plane from Vancouver mm. back to Beijing. But uh, I think that's pretty unlikely. And that's obvious political interference in a, in in a, exactly, in a, in a no. judicial process. The other extreme is to hand her over with forthwith to the United States. But it's not clear, I mean, following on from what Michael was saying, that we're not seeing here one of a number of divisions within the Trump administration uh, over dealing with China and over trade. Because Trump was said to have been furious when he was told of her arrest, which happened when he was meeting Xi Jinping at the G20, their dinner in Buenos Aires. And when he was hoping to, you know, shake hands, this extraordinary relationship I have, the best any 
any president has ever had with a Chinese leader and make the most of that. And he saw this mm-hmm. as fouling that up, which uh, it could well do. On the other hand, there are those around him, his trade negotiators, above all, who are not interested in the tariffs that get him all excited and so on. They're interested in stopping China rising as a technological power. And Huawei, which she is chief financial officer of, is one of the absolute leading forces in that. So you don't know quite where you are uh, on, on, on the American side, apart from the usual opacity on the Chinese side. Do you think there's likely to be much more of this, Michael? If they arrest three Canadians and they don't get whatever reaction it is that they want, are they going to find reason to round up a few more? Probably not in numbers. They'll try other sorts of pressure. They might start cutting off all trade uh, dealings yep. and they might start possibly with diplomatic relations or something of that kind. No, I don't think hostage taking is in the end the best, the best way of doing it. But they could make their displeasure felt all sorts of ways. Uh, and I think Canada could be coming under some pressure. And I think, I mean, them... It, It's very difficult for the Canadians simply to override... Well, they can't override their courts. Mm. But the fact they could tell her, just get on a plane and go. (laughs) Go home, and that's it. But that, in the present state of affairs, would be the Canadian government interfering... Well, I suppose it would, yes. It would, because the judicial process said you can't... I'm no expert on the judicial process in in Canada, but it would seem rather difficult, different. Whereas Trump has more or less said, hey, you know, if she comes to America, I'll deal with her as one of the counters in the broader trade. I think it's a very... I think it's a foolish move on all sides, actually. It's not the best way of of dealing with the technological challenge of this very large company. Uh, And just, just as a final quick thought on this, Jonathan, are we anywhere near the point yet at which if you were a Canadian citizen resident in China, you might be thinking about getting on a plane? I wouldn't think about getting on a plane out of China necessarily, but I would certainly get think about getting on a plane into China. <laughs> uh, OK, well, finally tonight, a small but perhaps significant step forward in the tentative thawing in relations between the United States and Cuba. While many Cubans have had successful and profitable careers in Major League Baseball, they've only been able to do so by defecting from their homeland, often taking their chances en route with people traffickers. That is going to change. The MLB has reached an agreement with the Cuban Baseball Federation, which will allow Cubans to play in the US in exchange for a percentage of their signing bonuses, which is all very capitalist of them. Um, Michael, is it possible that this is one of those things that may not sound like that big a deal, but actually is quite a big deal? Because the the, the MLB, Major League Baseball, is, is one of the places in American life which for the last few decades Cubans have been among the most prominent. There's been many great Cuban players in, in baseball. Um, it, it will be a way in which... Uh, it will become an arena in which, I guess, the relationship between the two countries will be discussed. Yes, and of course it's also an area where thousands and millions of Americans are deeply engaged. Mm. I mean, baseball is the lifeblood of American life in many ways. I mean, it's... Certainly during the summer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's a bit of a contrast because Trump had a policy of trying to stop Obama's political thaw with Cuba because it was negotiated by Obama and therefore by definition it must be bad and against the interests <laughs> of the Republicans mm. uh, and that's gone I mean he has reversed some of the Obama liberalization but this is a way of actually countering that own reversal without the White House having to get involved in it at all just to allow something to go ahead without blocking it as it were uh, and I think it is quite a significant move uh, and I think it's all to the good it's a bit like 
Um, in Soviet times, you know, if you were a ballet dancer, the only way you could go and dance in New York was by defecting. Now, the Bolshoi... Or, or, or indeed, if you were a hockey player. Or, well, any of those yeah. things. And now, of course, uh, you just go you go because uh, you get paid lots of money and, and the, the state does well out of it as well. And I think that's smart of both the Cubans and the Americans for turning a blind eye to Trump's attempts to halt the whole uh, relationship, uh, normalization of relations. Yeah, but Trump seems to have dived into this one too. Oh, has he? I'm, I, I'm, uh, so I, I, oh, well, I, I, heard I hope. Well, how has he died? What's happened? By saying this is a bad, this is a bad deal. Oh, this is dear, a bad oh, deal. Dear, I, dear, you know, dear. I didn't. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have negotiated this. This is yes. the kind of thing Obama would have done. Yes. And well, so on, so. I doubt if he can stop it now. Or uh, just as long as none of them are kneeling during the anthem, of course. <laughs> of course yeah. uh, I mean, Jonathan, is it possibly smart of the Cubans for reasons beyond the financial? And they'll, they'll, they'll make a few quid for the percentage of signing bonuses, mm. which in MLB can be considerable. But is this a record? recognition um, of that thing we were talking about earlier, that this this is a, it, it's something of a soft power operation. They, underst- they understand the value that this is one of the ways in which Cuba projects a positive image inside the United States. Absolutely, I would think that. I mean, in a way, it's you can draw parallels with the famous ping pong diplomacy between mm. the US and China uh, all those decades ago. Um, yeah, I mean, sport does have this uh, role to play if it's played properly. And usually if it's not too politicised. And it works the other way around as well, that you can use sport as a weapon when you really want to affect opinion in the country, namely mm. the uh, boycott of sport in South Africa. South, yes. uh, and that really was a death blow to apartheid. Mm. Well, indeed so. Is it, is it enough to make either of you take an active interest in baseball? Uh me probably not. <laughs> I, I, I've watched baseball from that time, but I've never been bitten by the baseball bug. I I'm say. afraid not only am I not bitten by it, but I can't even bring myself to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> All emails of complaint from yeah, American listeners to, directly to Jonathan and Fenby. Go Cubs. Uh, that does bring us to the end of today's show. Jonathan Fenby and Michael Binion, thanks for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Nick Manise. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900, The Urbanist with Andrew Tuck. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Miller. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.